When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. athleticgreens.com slash surf do you want to surf till 100 like felipe pomar if you want any shot at that at all nutrition is a key part of achieving that goal i did my part today it took me 20 seconds and almost zero prep planning or effort ag1 is a whole foods powder fortified with mushroom enzyme probiotic prebiotics and a grand total of 75 vitamins minerals nutrients the sum total of which fills nutrient gaps, promotes gut health, and supports whole body vitality. It helps with recovery, boosts energy and neurofunctioning, and supports immunity. Research it yourself on their website, but go through our portal because it supports us. Athleticgreens.com surf. They'll ship you a pouch of powder monthly. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D along with five free travel packs of powder. And you can feel comfortable trying it with a 60-day money-back guarantee, which I've never heard of anybody utilizing because AG1 solves for a complex equation that we've all been chasing throughout adulthood. So again, athleticgreens.com surf. Set yourself up for success and no fuss, health, and wellness. Athleticgreens.com slash surf. Somebody from Italy called me and said, Pope Francis has approached Netflix and asked them to make a program about the importance of young people connecting with older people. And we want you to be on the program. Wow. Yeah, so that's what I said. <laughs> so after I got this call, I mention it to a couple of friends of mine and they asked how much are they going to pay you <clears throat> so i said well actually i haven't asked that question yet but it's a good question so next time i speak to vito vito was the guy who called me from italy i said next time i speak to vito i will ask him so a few days later i'm on the phone with vito and I say, hey, Vito, some friends asked me how much I'm going to get paid for this. And he said, oh, no, we can't pay you. And I said, well, how come? You're having people fly from California. And you're going to pay them. And you got people flying from Maui and you're going to pay them. How come I don't get paid? He said, well, if we paid you, you would be an actor. And this is a documentary. So we can't pay you. So, you know, I said, well, okay. <laughs> I guess that explains that. And so then they were going to fly people into Kauai to interview and film me catching some waves. 
And about that time, a part of a hill slid down and covered the highway. And that was a big problem because there was a lot of people who lived on the other side of the mudslide, the rock slide, and all those people couldn't get out. And so when Netflix called the county of Kauai to get a permit for the filming, they said we're not awarding any permits for filming right now. So then they called me from Italy and they explained to me that they couldn't do the filming on Kauai and would I mind going to Oahu? And so I said, no, that's okay. You know, I can go to Oahu. So they paid for my way and for my accommodations. But I checked the surf report and the surf report said that it was going to be about five feet on the North Shore on the day that they were going to film. And I didn't want to take my stand-up gun, you know, on an airplane, they can damage it and five feet, you know, I don't need my gun on five foot waves. So I decided I won't take a board, I'll just borrow one over there. So I got to Oahu, I borrowed a board, you know, I just picked a board that was about the right size. And I figured for four to five feet, you know, I don't need anything special. Yeah. And then the morning that we were supposed to film at daybreak, it was not five feet, it was eight to 10 feet. And eight to 10 feet at sunset is very different than four feet. And on top of that, it was very difficult conditions. Uh, you know, it was, it was lumpy and it was windy and it was somewhat stormy. And I had this really floaty board that was not at all right and I had never been on it. And it was an ordeal. Uh, I can say I had no fun at all, but I was able to get two or three waves. And I think on my third wave, I decided that's it. You know, I hope they got it because I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having no fun at all. And so I went in and they, they did a good job. They got it. And so the program has four parts. And one part is called the dream. And one part is called the struggle. And they originally told me that I was on the, I was going to be on the part called the dream. And so I was stoked, you know, that's, that fits as far as I'm concerned perfectly. I had a dream that I would be a top big wave surfer. And, you know, I accomplished that. But in the end, they put me into the struggle. I guess that applies as well, you know? I mean, when you go out in big waves, it's always a struggle. Absolutely. Yeah. But anyway, you know, all of the people that are in it are very accomplished people that have accomplished a lot. And I'm very happy that they considered me and uh, included me in the program. I'm curious, did the Pope request you? directly or was it part of the production team that figured found you you see there were a lot of questions that i should have asked yeah and that's one of them i never asked it 
I don't know why they chose me. I don't know how they found me. I I have no idea how all of that worked out. That old manager from back in the day is still working for you. <laughs> uh, that would be a good explanation, except he's no longer with us. Uh, well, maybe the Pope has contact with him. That's right. What I'm, what I'm hoping for is that I will get treasures in heaven for participating. In that episode, Felipe also tells a harrowing story of a near-death experience he suffered at Laniakea, where he actually saw an apparition underwater. He was one breath away from giving up, and uh, it's just really compelling stuff. So that show is called Stories of a Generation with Pope Francis. It's on Netflix. It came out in 2021. And alongside Felipe, it features Martin Scorsese, Jane Goodall, and many, many more luminaries. Felipe's story is woven throughout episode three. Uh, this podcast that you're listening to right now is actually part two of two with Felipe. In part one, Felipe discusses his championship win in 1965 of the first ever surfing world championships. He discussed the time that he surfed a tsunami in Peru. And today he outlines how the earliest known existence of surfing took place in Peru, dated back 5,000 years. And he also details how if you want to surf to 100, sure fitness matters but you should also consider getting a pet and being of service to your community trust me or more importantly trust him he's already logged 66 years in the water so he knows what he's talking about so without further ado my name is david scales and here's the rest of my conversation with the great felipe pomar The last story that we covered when we were talking was the tsunami story. And um, if you had more to say around that, I'm welcome to hear it. I would love to hear it. But um, I was going to ask you, if you didn't have anything else to discuss, to tell me about surfing's origins in Peru. Very good. Yeah. To finalize the thing about the tsunami story. Yeah. It's a bad idea. if. Anybody has warning of a tsunami coming, better to run for the hills. Good, that's good advice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I wanna make sure we don't steer anybody into the ocean. Yeah, then about the origins in Peru. Okay, when I was a teenager at Club Waikiki in Lima, I heard some older club members having a conversation and say that in Northern Peru, the fishermen rode waves in little boats. At that time I was into surfing, I was not into boats, so I didn't pay any more attention. 
And then I think it was roughly 15 minutes, 15 years later or something like that. I had the opportunity to go to Northern Peru. And I had also heard that they had the very long waves. So I went up there. And upon driving into this little fishing town and seeing the fishermen riding waves, I realized that they were not little boats. You know, if you, can, if you knew nothing about surfing, yeah, you might call them little boats because they float, you know, and they're not that big. But then if you had never seen anybody surf and you saw surfers, you might say, hey, they're riding waves on little boats. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I realized that they were not little boats. They were, made, they were ancient wave craft made out of a different material. And, you know, they looked somewhat different because they had a lot more scoop in the nose. But they probably ranged in size from 10 to 14 feet. And when you consider what the Hawaiians used to ride, you know, hundreds of years ago, they were riding probably 12 to 16 foot a surfboards made out of solid wood. These fishermen in Peru were riding these 10 to 14 feet long wave craft made out of reeds. And the reeds were lighter than the solid wood that was used by the Hawaiians. And we now know that lightness is an advantage. And so this ancient design that is probably about 5,000 years old was so good that they're still using it today. And uh, so, yeah, so when I saw them riding waves, I was blown away. You know, I felt like I had stepped into a different world and I was meeting my great great grandfather and he was there and you know that kind of a thing but to do with surfing so anyway I when I went back to Hawaii on my way back I stopped by uh, the surfer the magazine's offices and I wrote an article about ancient surfing in Peru and you know I, I was I was surprised I was shocked but upon seeing them if you're a surfer there's no doubt in your mind that you know those are surfers they're riding waves they're doing what we do with slightly different equipment because they had different materials and because they were designed thousands of years ago. Were they riding waves recreationally or was it functional as part of their fishing? Okay, that is an excellent question. 
So let me ask you this. Have you ever ridden a wave and have it not be fun? No. No. Okay. And to nail it in further, the fishermen would build a little surf craft for their sons so that they could go out in the ocean, play in the waves, learn how to ride waves, learn how to deal with, you know, the currents in the ocean. And they were definitely not fishing, they were playing and surfing. And the idea was that when they grew up to an age where they could become fishermen, they knew all about the waves, they knew about the currents in the ocean and so on and so forth. So the children were definitely only doing it for fun. And as a fisherman, since it's impossible to ride a wave and not enjoy it, and most fishermen are done with their work by early in the morning, and then, you know, they go out, they go fishing during the night, they come back in the early morning. If they had a good catch, they're done for the day. So if you know how much fun it is to ride waves and you got the equipment to do it and uh, you got all day to do whatever you want, what are the chances of you going out and catching some more waves? So the recreational thing was a, a definite yes. And in addition to that, they had competitions every so often. So, you wow. know, just like, yeah, just like we have competitions, they had competitions. And it's kind of a natural thing, you know? It is. Can you explain more about the craft itself? You said that it's made out of reeds. Tell me more. Correct. It's made out of a reed, which in Spanish is called totora. It's called the totora reed. The scientific name is Californicus something or other. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was discovered by somebody from California, or maybe they have it in California. I don't know. But it's a reed that the fishermen plant and at the right time they harvest it and they use it to build their surf craft, which is used for fishing and for riding waves. But it's essentially a woven structure, correct? It's not woven. It's a reed which they plant and at a certain stage they cut it and then they dry it and then they tie it together. Okay, so more like a raft. Yeah, more like a raft. As a matter of fact, they call them among fishermen, they often call them rafts. Okay. They range, like I said, maybe from nine to 14 feet. And they're probably around 23 inches wide. Okay. And they're unipersonal, you know, occasionally uh, they might uh, 
take somebody with them, but they're basically a one person, one man uh, raft. And uh, so they cut the reed, they dry them, they tie them into bundles, and then they put the bundles together and they end up with something that looks like a paddle board with a compartment in the back where they put their water and their nets. And when they catch the fish, the fish, and uh, you know, they put all of that in the back, but it's, it's an open compartment. It's not like a closed thing. Okay. Is it flat on the deck or is there a kind of contour that you can stand in or sit in? Uh, they normally, okay, there's two bigger bundles that are called the mother bundle and two smaller bundles that are called the sun bundle. And they put them together in such a way that you have, imagine two bundles are about 11 inches wide each. So that when you tie them together, they're about 22 or 23 inches wide and they're round. And has, so you end up with two bundles with a slight indentation in the middle, but since they're reed, they're soft, and uh, you know you can sit on them or you can knee on them or you can stand on them. Uh, I've seen kids riding waves standing on their head. So you know there. I mean, wow. uh, and the bottom has the same thing. So the bottom is two bundles with like a concave in the middle. And they did not use fins, but they made them in different sizes. Okay, here's an interesting observation. When the Spanish conquistadors arrived in Northern Peru, probably around the year 1600, they wrote down what they observed or at least they had, they had people among them that were writing down everything they observed. And they observed that depending on the size of the waves, the fishermen would pick a different surf vehicle. Actually, they called them caballitos. The Spanish conquistadors, when they saw them, they didn't call them boats. And you know, they knew all about boats because they had arrived on a boat, all right? They had come from Spain or wherever on ships. So they knew all about boats. And when they observed them, they knew they were seeing something they had never seen before. So they didn't know what, they, what to call it. And they ended up calling it caballito and a caballo is a horse mm -hmm. so they call them little horses and the reason they call them little horses is that they arrived in horses 
and they saw these fishermen riding waves. So they called them little reed horses, little Totora horses. Wow. Uh, I'm not sure if I answered your question. What was it? It was about the shape of the design and the contours on the top and the bottom. Okay, so it's two bundles. They're tied together and they're tied together in such a way that they have a pronounced scoop in the nose. And the reason that is important is that in most of Peru's beaches, there are often no channels. So you have to paddle out through the waves. And that scoop in the nose means that when the white water hits the caballito, it just rises up in the air and then falls back on the back of the wave. So that allows them to go out, paddle out through the waves. And it allows them to not pearl when they're catching a wave to come into shore. Right. And I remember where I was going. So the Spanish conquistadors observed that the fishermen had several caballitos and that they would pick the adequate one depending on the size of the surf. When the surf was large, they would paddle out on a smaller caballito and they would paddle with their arms, just like mm. surfers today. And the amazing thing is that there is a description where they say that they will duck under waves like wild ducks. Okay, wow. so these guys were duck diving. What's that? Over a thousand years ago, 1500 years ago. And we didn't start duck diving until I don't know, the 70s or, you know, some maybe later than that. But they Incredible. were duck diving 1500 years ago. And then they said, that when the surf was small, they would use these bigger paddle boards and they would paddle them with half a bamboo. So they would paddle more like a kayak or a stand-up paddler. And uh, they would also use the paddle as a as a skig or as a keel, you know, once they catch the wave, they would stick the paddle in the water to give, to have more control and more, give the caballito better direction. Yeah, like an outrigger canoe. Yeah, like an outrigger canoe, correct. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely fascinating. Um, once you discovered this and kind of published it in Surfer Magazine, have any scholars investigated further to connect all of the dots in between? Yes. Uh, let me think for a minute. Anyway, there's been several scholars who have gone down and uh, have observed everything that I just told you and some of them came up with the same question that you did. Okay, there's no, whether they were used for enjoyment, 
for fun. There were some of those, but all of them agreed that there's no doubt that these fishermen were riding waves four or 5,000 years ago. That was agreed upon. It would be surprising if that existed 4,000 years ago. And then in French Polynesia, surfing develops on its own remotely and then transports back to Peru. It seems like if there was enough research done or enough documentation along the way that in Peru, it would have evolved from what you're talking about 4,000 years ago into more refined, what we know as surfboards on its own evolutionary tract without the influence from French Polynesia, I would think. Okay, from the readings that I have done, there was some wave writing in Polynesia before the Hawaiians, and you've okay. mentioned French Polynesia. And I have given this a lot of thought. And my conclusion is that there are places like French Polynesia where surfing would most likely not develop because the waves are very aggressive. And, you know, if you didn't have excellent equipment and were not a proficient surfer, you would die in most places in French, in French Polynesia. And there's a couple of places where tiny little waves come in closer to shore and maybe children would play in them. But I'm talking about tiny children. You know, no men would spend any time on those tiny little waves because maybe they're knee high or something. So, you know, there's no challenge there whatsoever. Yeah. And the real waves are so threatening that you wouldn't want to get near them, not in your canoe, not in any fashion whatsoever. So the chances of surfing developing there is very, very slim. I think it would take a place like Waikiki or Peru, where you have relatively gentle waves often that break far out and they roll in. That's the kind of a place that it would take to for surfing to develop. Yeah. And then there's a possibility that surfing started in Peru and migrated to French Polynesia. And it's also possible that it started in French Polynesia and came to South America. But my studies tell me that there were populations in Peru before there were populations in French Polynesia. So that would kind of cinch it. You know, as far as I know, the oldest example of people actually taking something to enough importance that they're gonna build something that allows them to go in the ocean and ride waves. As far as I know, the, the, the first case of that would be these fishermen in Peru.
Okay. And have you ridden a cabalito? I've sat on it. I've had friends of mine try to ride it. You know, it's difficult because it has no fin. And so I, I love surfing. And so if I have a choice, I'm gonna go out and surf on something that I know how to use and I can control. And I was not willing to spend enough time on a caballito to learn how to use it. So all I did was I paddled it and I sat on it, but I've never caught a wave on it. And you said they're still actually riding those and making those today, modern fishermen? They are. And since it's, first of all, it's part of surfing's history. So that's one reason why it's important to try to preserve them. And secondly, it's rare to have something that's been in use for 5,000 years. True. So that's another reason, good reason to try to preserve them. So right now the fishermen have some serious problems and we're trying to help them solve them so that they don't die out. Okay. What kind of problems? Two types of problems. Number one, you know, for 5,000 years, they've been using certain areas to do their fishing. And now there are larger commercial fishing vessels that are coming into their area and they're destroying their nets and they're taking their fish so that I, you know, in not too long ago, they used to be able to get a hundred pounds of fish and now they can only get five or six pounds of fish because these bigger boats are coming in and taking all the fish. Gotcha. So we're trying to get the Navy and the Peruvian government to pass some laws and actually some laws have already been passed, but they're not being patrolled so that, you know, the laws are there to protect the area that the caballitos fish in, but the boats come in anyway. And so gotcha. we want to get the Navy to enact some fines and some ways of preventing fishing vessels from coming into the Caballito fishing area. And the second thing is the reeds. A lot of these towns are growing and all of a sudden the reed growing areas have commercial value. And again, the certain rules have been passed to protect their reed growing areas but we need to hire some attorneys to make sure that the right type of protection is there so that they don't lose their reed growing ponds. Yeah. And yeah. let me add something. A friend of mine who, who's a cinematographer and I started going to Peru in 19... Let me get this right. It was 1990. And so for 30 years, 
Over 30 years, he, we went down to Peru about five times. And he just recently finished a documentary that was filmed over a 30 year period. And it tells the story of these fishermen. And we're gonna be passing it. We're gonna be showing it for the first time on the internet. And we hope to get people who like the idea that we want to protect the roots of surfing and help these, these fishermen. We're going to try to get donations so that we can get them protected and get them to survive. What's the name of the film? The film is called The Surf Riders of Peru. Is there a release date? Uh, we have the film. It's just that we want to educate people a little bit. It's a short documentary. It's like 22 minutes. So we're doing a couple of introductory things so that people learn a little more like you're learning before we actually show the documentary. So we're probably gonna have about three or four modules, maybe about half an hour each. And on the last module, we will show the documentary and that's gonna be released maybe within the next 30 days. Oh, okay. Yeah. Excellent, yeah. I'll try to help get the word out in any way I can. Thank you so much. That's going to be very important. Realwatersports.com for any and all of your surf-related needs in or out of the water, by the way. They have surfboards galore, of course, foil boards, kite kits, wetsuits, board bags, accessories, but they also have clothing. They actually sent me a bunch of clothes for my one-year-old for Christmas. So how cool is that? Not only cool, but thoughtful. So many of the great surfboard shapers that we interview here have boards available at Real Water Sports. And Real also has a deep archive of video reviews detailing each of their surfboards. So that Christian Navitimer that a listener won two weeks ago, Real has a 16-minute video with Chris Christensen's head of production, John Peck. They're detailing the board, writing the board, explaining the design, etc. So I know that some surfboard shapers offer that type of insight on their website, but Real is the only place that I know that has an aggregate of all of that info across dozens of brands, all in one place. So peruse, learn, and be entertained at realwatersports.com. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 
2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's LinkedInjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Kind of moving on from that, I wanted to ask you about your uh, professional career outside of surfing. I know even as a pro surfer, in the era that you came up with, there probably wasn't a tremendous amount of uh, opportunity to make a living directly off of surfing, but maybe ways Correct. that you could leverage your surf pop popularity to do other things. Correct. So what have you been doing for work all this time? When I won the 65 world championships, a man from Peru approached me and said he wanted to be my manager. And he offered me, I think it was $10,000, which back then was a lot of money. And so of course I was very happy to accept. And this person had some contacts in the US so that shortly after winning I left Peru to go back to Hawaii and he set up an appointment with me. He set up an appointment for me with Metro Golden Mayor, the movie company. MGM. Correct. So on my way to Hawaii, I stopped off in Los Angeles and I went to this person's office. And it was a very impressive office in Hollywood. And I remember walking down this aisle that had these giant pictures of Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley and you know that kind of people on the walls. And at the end of the corridor, there was this secretary. So I identified myself and she said, oh yes, Mr. So-and-so is expecting you. I walked in and there's this man sitting behind this very big desk. And, you know, he greets me and we talk and he says, well, you'll be wanting to move to Los Angeles and take acting lessons. So I thought about it for a minute. And I said, well, thank you so much for the offer but I've never really thought about being an actor. It's not something that I think I would be very good at because I've never even thought about it. And I really love what I'm doing in Hawaii. So I said, I thank you for the offer, but I think I'm going back to Hawaii. So he scratched his head and he said, well, this is the first time I've ever been, let's see, what word? This is the first time I've ever been refused. <laughs> and I said, well, excuse me, I'm not refusing you. 
if you ever come to Hawaii to make a movie about surfing, <laughs> you know, please keep me in mind. Uh, anyway, so that was one way that I made some money. And although the Hollywood thing never went anywhere, he then got me a contract with a company called Robert Bruce. That was a very big clothing company. They also had Jack Nicholas under contract. And they also had a race car driver called Mario Andretti, who was a famous race car driver at that time. And so they got, you know, the same guy that had me under contract. He got me that particular uh, job. And it was excellent. So for, for two or three years, I was making a nice amount of money that covered all of my expenses and travel and college education and all of that. Were, was it a sponsorship, essentially? Well, it was more than a sponsorship. It was an actual contract where they were paying me seven or $10,000 to um, wear their clothing publicly and represent them as a brand? Or were they, what exactly did they expect of you? Uh, once a year, they would sit up a shooting, uh, a photography thing somewhere. They took me to Jamaica once and to Italy once. And they would do, you know, they would, they would do, photographing for their advertising. And we would also do a promotional tour where we would cross the United States. Uh, you know, we'd start in California somewhere and hit a number of big cities on the way to the East Coast. And uh, It'd be a promotional thing in each city. We would go to one of, one of the big department stores and sign autographs or, you know, just a, it would appear in the newspapers and they would get publicity that way. Were you on the road with Mario Andretti? I was never on the road with Mario. All I know is that they had, uh, they had advertisements similar to the ones they did with me with Mario. Yeah. yeah. That's a solid team. You were in good company. I was. And they, they were obviously very professional and they were a company that was outside of the surf industry. Right. Yeah, that's proven to be um, the best way a lot of times, even, even nowadays. It's just a lot more lucrative and they demand a lot less of the athletes, it seems. It, yeah, it was very good for me. About twice a year, there was the promotional tour and the, and the picture taking, and that probably took a total of two weeks. Wow. Yeah. That's nice. Um, what did you do professionally after professional surfing? I went to real estate school and got my real estate license. And shortly after that, I got a broker's license. And I'm still a real estate broker today. Where do you 
operate. I haven't been using my license now for many years, but since I have it, I renew it. You never know when it can come in handy. And, you know, I, for many years, what I did was I was in the land business. So what I would do is it fit very well with my lifestyle. I would surf in the morning, rest in the middle of the day, and go work from five o'clock until 10 o'clock at night, where I would go to people's homes and talk to them, sell them property, land, mainly on the mainland. You know, so that's California, Oregon, Arizona, Florida, Colorado, Nevada, etc. Uh, residential? Uh, many times they were zoned for residential and sometimes they were not. Okay, interesting. Um, can you tell me about what is Surf Till 100? Sure. When I was in my mid-50s, I was surprised by having a number of health challenges. You know, I had lived a healthy life. I had been very fitness conscious all my life. And I had had very little health problems. And all of a sudden in my mid fifties, I had several serious health problems. And I remember wondering why did nobody warn me? You know, it was like a, it was a surprise. It was a shock. And my doctor who did my second shoulder operation told me I should never surf again. Mm. And of course, since I love surfing, that was a horrible thing to hear. So I decided I was going to not pay attention. And instead, I was going to learn as much as I could about health so that I could continue doing what I love to do. And so that was maybe when I was 55. You know, he also told me not to do any upper body workouts and a number of other things. Hmm. And so I didn't, I didn't pay attention regarding surfing. I kept doing that, but I, I didn't do the upper body workouts as he had recommended for like close to 20 years maybe more like 15 years. And then one day I was watching television and I was watching all these people working out. And I thought, well, the doctor told me not to surf or not to work out, but I've been surfing, so maybe I can work out. So I got a hold of a close friend and we started working out together. And a few months later, I found I could do 18 chin-ups. And I remember that when I was a teenager, 
I could do 18 chin-ups. And I realized this when I was close to 70. So I thought, well, I don't know if that's normal or if that's better than normal, that I can do as many chin-ups at 70 as I could do when I was a teenager. So I thought, okay, maybe we should test this. And I had this book that has these competitions, these international surfing competitions that took place in Peru. And in 1968, the top paddlers had been in Peru and I had won this race against the top paddlers in the world. And the book had the time for, had my winning time. So I decided I'm going to go down to Peru. I'm going to announce that I'm going to try to improve on my winning time. And if I can, that definitely proves that, you know, our training program is amazing because if I can do something physical and age 70 better than I could do it in my 20s, that's exceptional, that's unusual. So Tom and I went to Peru and the Peruvian Surfing Federation organized a race and they timed me and I improved on my time, my winning time of 1968, which worked out to 47 years earlier. Wow. Yeah, Remarkable. so then, Exactly. So then him and I decided we have to share what we're doing because society tells us that when you're 65 and you retire, you're old and you can't do anything, basically. And, you know, here we were 70 years of age and doing things just as well or better than we had when we were in our 20s. So that's how Surf Till 100 started. And then Jeff Hackman joined us shortly afterwards. And now what we do is we do adventures where we go to locations that have excellent surf and share a lot of the things that we have found that help people stay young and stay healthy and stay active regardless of your age. Got it. The website, it says um, that you achieve that by quote, teaching you how to successfully master many of the basics of healthy lifestyle, diet, exercise, emotional resilience, relationships, and involvement in supportive community. Um, I would like That's to ask all good, you- but we forgot to write in vitamins and supplements that should be part of that as well. Okay. So beyond diet and exercise make perfect sense. I wanted to ask you, how does, what does emotional resilience mean? And how does that factor into surfing till you're 100? And the same question for relationships and involvement in a supportive community. Okay. Well, let's take it one at a time. Resiliency is more the field of my partner, Tom Woods, but it basically means 
having the mindset that you know that you're going to have difficulties and obstacles and if you're clear on your goals and what you want you're going to push through and you're not going to let them stop you i would love to hear um what's you guys have to say about how to accomplish that because i think that is the stumbling block for most people and especially as we're we're recording this on january 3rd so people are starting new year's resolutions that they're ultimately going to stop at some point or a lot of people the vast majority of people do stop at a certain point um and so it is confronting that emotional blockade that's the tool that people need i understand i'll be happy to give you my partner tom woods information and you can do a program with him but you know, like I say, that's his field, but I understand that being clear on what you want and why you want it is a big part of the picture. Gotcha. It's an important part. That makes a lot of sense. Right. And reminding yourself, you know, I mean, I have something written on my refrigerator so that if you write it down, you're better off than if you don't write it down. Yeah. And then if you write it down and you look at it every day, you're better off than if you just write it down and put it away somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. And then if you look at it every day and focus on it, you're even further ahead of the game. Well. So then explain um, how relationships and involvement in a supportive community relate to surfing until you're 100. There is no question that having people around you that you care for and that care for you, that has been proven to be an important part of the success of people that live a long life. In other words, it makes a lot of sense. If, you, if you're a person that's alone in your own room and you don't care for anybody and nobody cares for you, you're not gonna live as long as somebody that has a lot of relationships that you care for and that care for you. Yeah. And what was the other one? It's related to that. It's involvement in a supportive community. Okay, I would, I would turn that around a little bit and I would say that what is really important is having a way that you can contribute to the people around you and to your community. And once again, if you're contributing something of value, you will feel good and people will appreciate you. So it's a win-win situation. Yeah, that's great. I'm curious if you had a client who's participating in this program, but doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily have relationships in their life, um, 
that provide a lot of that for them. You know, if somebody's lived till 50 or 60 and they've never necessarily valued relationships or they haven't invested in them up until right. that point, is there a way? It's yes. easy to train somebody for diet and exercise. I think it would be harder to train somebody to foster relationships. It's very easy. Number one, get a pet. Oh, okay. Yeah, very important. If it's a dog, it's even better. You got to walk it. Yeah. And the second thing is, if you're in your 60s, the chances are that you've learned some things in your life that you can pass on to others that would be good for them. So, you know, get involved with a group or a community or a school or whatever works best for what you have learned that you would like to pass on to younger people. Excellent. Yeah, that is a great, hardly anybody's made it to 60 who doesn't have life lessons that other people would value. Absolutely. Fascinating. Um, when you had those health concerns in your 50s, was there anything that you could have done prior to them that would have prevented them? Ah, uh, let me think for a minute. One of them, I don't mind saying it, was something called ulcerative colitis. Okay. And at that time, I went to a specialist and he told me that doctors did not understand it. They did, they did not know what caused it. So, you know, back then, doctors had no idea. So I don't have much of an idea. But if I had to guess, I would think that stress may be something that has, that is somehow involved. And the other thing was mainly old injuries that came back. And so, yeah, if you can help it, don't get injured. Um, did you learn how to manage stress more effectively? Uh, yes, I did. I, I took a class from a hypnotist that taught me a very good way of dealing with stress. Can you share that? Uh, yes, it was basically you lay down in a comfortable place and you start focusing on a certain part of your body. Let's say you start with your toes. And first of all, what's the correct word? you would tighten your toes and then you would relax them. And then you would go to your feet and you would tighten the muscles in your feet and then you would relax them. And you would do that throughout your entire body until you were fully relaxed. And at that point, you would run something through your mind like a mantra that is health oriented and, you know, telling you things that are gonna make you relax and feel good and be happy. 
was this a like a daily meditation or do you only do it when you were feeling stressed no i did it every day for a long time now i find that going in the ocean and surfing takes care of it for me so i no longer do it okay yeah i think stress is a, a really i don't know like an insidious problem because a lot of people don't even understand that they're feeling stressed you know they just have to deal with the residual effects of it and um it's probably very hard to unwind at that point but it's you know related to cancer it's related to balding and uh overweight cardiac You're disease right. all sorts of stuff all kinds of health issues correct yeah let me, I was going to ask you about Surf to 100, the website for Surf to 100, or what, how do people participate? Is it an online program or? That's a great question. We're going to be inviting people to come on our website and sign into our newsletter. Gotcha. And that gotcha. way, we're going to be able to invite them to participate in the showings regarding the documentary that I was telling you about. Gotcha. So, gotcha. you know, that's gonna be our way of making contact with people and inviting them to the showing. Okay. Um, and then another thought on aging, do you have any tips for how to stay motivated? because I feel like motivation is something that wanes with age as well. It's just harder to uh, do any physical activity, really, the older that I get. Yes. Once again, it's a matter of doing some deep thinking and deciding, finding things that are of great importance to you and then telling yourself, for example, that going in the water X number of times a week is going to keep you healthier. So you're going to be able to spend more time with your family and is going to keep you happier. So you're going to be a better husband or father or whatever that might be. And just focus on the things that you love and get clear on why what you want or would like allows you to have a longer or a better relationship or response or you know a relationship yeah yeah i know i like when I first, I think Hackman was the first one who mentioned surf to 100 to me. And I just presumed that it was all physical fitness related, like keeping your body in good condition to be able to go out and surf. But I was so, uh, I don't know, inspired when I dug into it and I realized that it's much more holistic approach. And it's so much more about uh, like you just said, kind of rethinking what your goals are and how you want to achieve those goals, you know, and surfing plays a role in it, but relationships play a role in it and community plays a role in it and all that other stuff. Correct. I mean, 
If all it took was physical fitness, then a lot of people would be surfing at 100. Because, yeah, you know, sure. there's a lot of fit people in the world. But the fact that nobody has achieved it proves that it's extremely difficult. And if you want to achieve something that's extremely difficult, now you have to find every possible way that may help you get to that goal. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, is there anywhere in the world that you would still like to explore for surf? I would. For example, there's a place called Nias that I've never been to. I would love to go there. And I'm also interested in South Africa. But what often happens is I already know places that are excellent and I love them and I'm well organized there. And so often when it comes down to actually making the choice, I choose the place that I know, you know, I'm gonna be comfortable. My equipment is there. I love the place. Uh, I go back to the, to the known. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, can you mention what are your favorite, what are among your favorite places? Well, I got a problem doing that because as you know, crowds are a problem. Yep. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, how closely do you follow professional surfing at this point? Not closely at all, unless it's held in really challenging and normally sizable waves. Okay. So you're not watching the WSL events? Uh, when somebody calls me and tells me, hey, there's this great thing going on, sometimes I do, but I can't say I follow it regularly. Are there any modern professional surfers who you are following or that you're interested in? I like Kelly Slater, obviously. I think that what he's accomplished is amazing. And several of the Brazilian surfers are doing unbelievable stuff. And uh, that's, you know, that's kind of a summary of it. And there, there's a few guys that are doing amazing stuff in big waves. And Laird Hamilton is always coming up with something new. Yeah. So, you know, those are the things I'm interested in. Um he's somebody who might surf till 100 he might i hope he does he's got it he's got it as good a shot as anybody yeah his but fitness I, re regime is continually evolving i hope to get there before he does yeah <laughs> well you're closer to 100 than he is exactly <laughs> um the final question for you and for everybody interviewed is just whose boards are you currently writing I am now doing only stand-up surfing. And Terry Chung shapes my stand-up guns. Amazing. Yeah, he, he has made some great boards. Um, what was the last one that you wrote? Well, actually, now that you ask, my favorite one snapped about a month ago. Okay. 
and I took it to a very good friend of mine who does a great job of fixing them. And he put it back together and I took it back out and two days later it buckled. And uh, so since it broke, I went to Terry and I asked him to build me a new one and that's on its way, but it's not finished yet. Is he building those out of EPS or polyurethane? Uh, forgive me, I'm not that knowledgeable. I call it foam. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. And you also mentioned a stand-up paddle gun. Correct. What, what is the gun design as opposed to a regular stand-up paddle board? Okay. Several years ago, when I was still surfing, I went out on a very big day. And I took my biggest gun and uh, Laird was out on a stand-up. And in three hours, I managed to catch one wave because it was so big and he caught a bunch of waves. So I saw that and I decided I got to learn how to do that. So I asked around and I found that Terry Chung made Laird's stand-up guns. So I went to Terry and I said, show me Laird's measurements on his gun. And, you know, I made a few adjustments because I'm not Laird Hamilton. And that was my first gun. And that's the one that snapped about a month ago. Oh, okay. So, yeah. I mean, we know what a gun looks like for paddle surfing, uh, you know, prone paddle surfing. Um, how is it different for stand-up paddle? It's still pointy on the nose Same and thing. It's okay. pointy on the front and pointy in the back. Okay. And yeah. what's the fin setup? Uh, I've been using five fins and three fins. Interesting. Yeah. When it gets really big, I've been more comfortable with five fins, but the board I'm using right now only has a three fin setup. Okay. But and my new my new one that's coming is going to have a five fin setup, and that way I can play with it and decide, you know, try different things. Is it narrower than a regular stand up paddleboard? Definitely. As a gotcha. matter of fact, the one I was using today was only twenty seven and a quarter, which is way too narrow. You fall a lot. Yeah. You know, yeah. once you're on the wave, it's great. But when you're paddling around, it's a hassle because you got to focus. And even if you focus, you fall often. Gotcha. And what is the reason that you stopped surfing? When I saw Laird catching all those waves that I told you about, and that I've always liked big waves. So when I realized what he could do, I decided I'm going to learn how to do that. And then as I was learning, you know, when you're learning something new, you get into it and you want to practice it more and more so that you can improve. And so all of that was going on. As a, and as a result, I was surfing less and less. And then it got to the point where I wasn't surfing at all. And then the problem is, the muscles that you use when you're laid down surfing 
are different than the muscles that you use when you're stand-up surfing. Yeah. So if I went surfing tomorrow, I'd be at a disadvantage to all the guys that are surfing because I haven't been using those muscles. Um, do you miss prone paddle surfing at all? Very, very rarely. For example, I miss it when it's very windy because very windy makes it difficult if you're on a stand-up. Yeah. But as long as the conditions are nice, another case might be if you have to paddle out through the break. You know, there are some places where you have to paddle out through the break. But under most conditions, I don't miss it at all. It's more of a workout and it has several advantages. Okay. Is there any scenario that you could envision where you would prone paddle surf again? Sure. If I went someplace where there were no other people or very few other surfers, or I was just with my friends, I think it'd be a lot of fun. Okay, cool. But you know, if my paddling muscles are not there, and I'm going to be at a disadvantage compared to all the people that are in the water, then it doesn't make sense to go for me to go surfing. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Well, Felipe, I really appreciate you taking so much time on two separate occasions to share all of this. Right on. Thank you very much. And if you can, let them know that if they go to the Surf Till 100 website, and they sign up for our newsletter we will keep them informed and let them know when the documentary on the caballito de totora is going to be showing absolutely will yeah. do sounds good thanks felipe okay aloha Great Felipe Pomar, ladies and gentlemen. In my opening salvo in part one, I read the quote from Matt Warshaw that described Felipe as debonair. Can you think of a better word to describe Felipe? Or, by the way, an adjective that you would rather have yourself described as? I cannot. Felipe embodies it. And the opportunity to spend two different afternoons with Felipe is really a great honor. So thank you, Felipe. And thank you listeners for giving me this opportunity through supporting us at five bucks a month on surfsplendorpodcast.com and by supporting our sponsors like athleticgreens.com surf and of course Real Water Sports. Thank you all. You can find all the images of everything that Felipe and I discussed on our website as well, surfsplendorpodcast.com. And if you want more surf content, visual surf content, Disney, Disney Plus, just launched today a new series called Chasing Waves. It's an eight-part documentary series focused on Japanese surf culture. I've seen all eight episodes. I highly recommend it to you. It was actually made by filmmaker Jason Baffa, 
who made Single Fin Yellow, he made One California Day, he made Bella Vita, and he's our guest next week here on Surf Splendor. So go watch Chasing Waves in preparation for next week's podcast, if you're so inclined, and if you have Disney+, Plus, of course. And otherwise, waves are pumping here in California and Hawaii, so get out of here, get out there. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. Go for it. Get back into the ocean, share some waves, and as always, shred on. Thank you.